many of you participated in, um, some of you knew of it, and maybe some of you didn't even know it happened, but I want you to know it happened, and I want you to know how proud of I am of our congregation. We set forth a challenge a couple weeks ago to pray for a solid 24 hours. We ask you to sign up for one of the 48 different half-hour spots to pray starting Friday morning at 8 a.m. all the way to Saturday to 8 a.m. for all the prayer requests submitted to the church, to pray for the church itself, uh, and to spend time with God in prayer. Um, and I'm proud to say we accomplished that. Uh, we had people showing up here at all odd hours of day, some of them which were very scared when they opened the door at 2 a.m. and saw me sitting there. <laughs> I think I gave Gretchen quite a heart attack. <laughs> um, but I want to say I'm very proud of us, uh, proud that uh, God has challenged us to do that and gave us the ability to accomplish it. Um, I trust that through the series we're hopefully reminding each other to go to God in prayer more. Um, to trust God in every little thing, and, and I hope things like this serve as a reminder. Um, and I want to draw your attention to the next part of this. Um, our Holy Week uh, begins uh, in a little over a week. And on Good Friday, uh, most of the day Friday and part of the day on Holy Saturday, we're going to be having downstairs something that's called a prayer labyrinth. Um, in many ways, it's kind of like a maze, a path that you walk, and there's stations on the labyrinth um, that help you identify getting closer to God um, to understand the events of Good Friday and Easter a little better. Um, and we have spots for those that you can sign up for. After the service is over, back in the narthex, there's a table. Jeff Golder's there. He t he'll take down your name and number or email. Um, there's lots of different spots. So we encourage you, if you're looking for a powerful Good Friday, uh, a powerful Easter weekend experience on Saturday afternoon. Um, pick one of those dates. It takes about an hour. Um, it's really a powerful thing. Some people here have done that before, uh, and they can tell you all about it. Um, I'm one of those. I'd gladly tell you my experience. So let's go to God in prayer. God, we ask that you speak to our hearts, minds, souls, all of us today. Create in us a new openness, an openness to hear your words, receive them, and make the changes in our lives. We see in your son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate barrier breaker. We ask that that power comes into our lives. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. The story I read from uh, Mark today as a kid was like one of my favorite stories. The story of these four guys tearing a roof off a house and lowering a guy on a mat. I remember very distinctly a kid in children's church once actually acting this out. Our, uh, youth, our youth director at that time had gotten a giant rug, literally placed one of the kids on the rug and told us to pick it up. It didn't end too well because kids trying to hold on with their tiny hands onto a rug can't really hold it well. And I'm sad to say our paralyzed man got dropped a couple of times. But it's definitely a memorable experience. I love that idea, this idea that they would just say, we're getting in there no matter what, so we're going to tear this roof off. But what we don't realize about stories like this is that a lot of times, and specifically in the case of this story, in much of the book of Mark, these weren't stories written down. These were stories told orally. And we call these, as we study these, we just call these the controversy stories of Jesus because something happens, controversy happens, 
and then Jesus answers it. It's a pattern over and over if you read through the book of Mark. The next couple chapters just deal with over and over stories like this, and they always have the same pattern. And it's a memorable pattern. And the reason stories are told like that is because that way if you hear them, you feel you can retell them. The Gospel of Mark was probably written almost 40 years after the death of Jesus. So the actual events of this, it's probably 42, 43, 45 years after this actually happened. It's not like us where we see something and we would go write it on Facebook. There wasn't, there wasn't Facebook in the day where you could say, Oh my gosh, I just saw someone tear off the roof of a house and lower a man down. <laughs> Couldn't see that happening. So instead they created these stories, a way to make these things memorable and tell them over and over until they were finally put together in this Gospel of Mark and written down. And I think that's powerful. I, I think we can actually stand to learn something from that. In many ways, wouldn't you think you knew the Bible better if we placed the focus on not necessarily always putting one in our hands, but forcing us to hear the stories and try to memorize it so we can tell other people. So that's what makes these stories so powerful. And for a lot of the early church, that's why it made it so much easier for them to share their faith because they had these things memorized. It seems a little awkward today to say, Oh, I know the story just for that. Let me get out my phone and show you this on, on my phone. It's easier when you know the story and you've lived it. So here in the story, Jesus is at home in a place called Capernaum. So Donna's got a map up there if she would show you. We have a map actually where Capernaum is. Um, it doesn't show up too well because it's so light in here, but it's the dot there at the top of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus settled there after leaving Nazareth. It was known as a fishing corner, a fishing village, and it was about 80 miles from Bethlehem to Nazareth. That was Jesus' first big move, from Bethlehem to Nazareth, and another 20 miles from Nazareth to Capernaum. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus described it this way. He said, one may call this place the ambition of nature, where it forces those plants that are natural enemies to one another to agree together. It's a happy contention of the seasons, as if every one of them laid claim to this country, for it not only nourishes different sorts of autumnal fruit beyond man's expectation, but preserves them a great while. It supplies men with the principal fruits, the grapes and figs continually during ten months of the year, and the rest of the fruits as they become ripe together through the whole year. For besides the good temperature of the air, it is also watered from a most fertile foundation. The people of the country call it Capernaum. Sounds like paradise, right? It's beautiful. Jews actually compared this to the Nile. They said this was Israel's Nile region, a rich, fertile land. And I don't know about you, I don't often think of Jesus like having a house, right? But Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he was 30. So he spends three years of his ministry once he turns 30, from 30 to, to his death at 33, Traveling, essentially homeless, relying on the hospitality of others. But what did you do in those other times? When Mary and Joseph booted him out of the house and said, Start your own business, bub. Get your own house. So apparently he chose a nice place to live. And that nice place was Capernaum. But Jesus was really popular. I want to show you another picture. This is a picture of a synagogue that's actually in Capernaum. Um, and it's a beautiful, it's still there if you would go visit it today, it was it. And one of the neat things about the synagogue is, this is a newer one, but there's a section near the back of it where you can see under it where is the original synagogue where Jesus would have taught in Capernaum. 
We see evidence of that in all the other Gospels. Even leading up into his public ministry, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue. And it made him a popular guy. So popular that when we get to today's story, people are literally knocking down his door, barging in his house to get healing, to hear words of wisdom spoke. Jesus was probably exhausted. Exhausted doing other ministries. Exhausted because more than likely he was a carpenter. So he already had his side job, he was already preaching on the side, and yet in his own free time, people are barring down his door, breaking down his door, ripping open his ceiling. And so that's why this is a great example today of why Jesus Christ is the ultimate barrier breaker. That's the point of today's sermon, to talk about breaking barriers. And we have barriers. We have internal barriers and we have external barriers that keep us from going to meet people for Jesus. We have those barriers that keep us from bringing people to meet him. And first I want to talk about the internal barriers. And some of these are probably obvious in our lives. They're barriers inside our own heads. We think about talking to someone about our faith and sharing with them the good news of God. And we can get stuck in our own heads before the words even reach our lips. Usually, we're hesitant because we don't want to lose a friendship. We worry, what happens if I invite my neighbor to church and they say no? What happens if I make my friend feel awkward? Has that changed the friendship? What if someone thinks I'm pressuring them? What if I come across as judgmental? What if... There's a million of them, but we have to identify those things. Those are internal barriers that prevent us from sharing that good news with others. So most of the time, we don't, we don't tell others. We don't invite others to church. Maybe we feel guilty about not doing it, but that guilt never comes to a point that it actually changes our behavior. These inner barriers keep us from even in mentioning our faith to our friends. And studies show that even the best of people that are sharing their faith, even the best that say they're comfortable with doing it, still have internal barriers. So I don't want to create this idea in some head that if we study this enough and we talk about this enough, someday you'll just wake up and all those barriers are gone, because that's not true. Even the best of us at sharing our faith still have internal barriers. In a true confession this week, even myself as a pastor, who my job is to share my faith, I don't find this easy. In fact, this week I got my hair cut and I was sitting there talking to the woman cutting my hair and I had my iPad with me and I had a book, the Unbinding Your Heart book, and I had it and I set it up and she talked about it and she said, oh, that's interesting. Asked me what I did and I said I was a minister in the Colonial Heights area. And the guy in the chair next to me was attending another church, and we talked a little bit about church. And at the end of the haircut, he invited the woman cutting my hair to church. <laughs> and I promise you, the entire time I'm getting my hair cut, one snip, I'm really going to do this. Next snip, no, I'm not. <laughs> These parries are not easy, so I don't want to act as though this is a simple task. But they're real, and we have to address them. So I encourage you maybe to think of it this way. It starts off with a simple statement like this. 
Maybe evangelism is just simply sharing something you enjoy with someone you like. Maybe it begins with something that simple and grows into something bigger. The four guys in today's gospel, it was a matter of sharing something that they thought might help their friend. That's evangelism too. Sharing something you need with someone else who needs it. Sharing something that makes you smile with someone who could use a smile. Sharing something that gives you peace with someone that you see in your life that's in the midst of chaos. Sharing something you enjoy with something, someone you like. Maybe crossing those barriers begins with something that simple. Somehow these four friends had the courage to overcome their eternal, internal barriers to bring their friend before Jesus. Somehow they overcame whatever those internal barriers are that might have been in their heads. That was the challenge for them and that is the challenge for us now. How do we bridge those internal barriers? But there's also external areas and I'm talking here a little bit about ourselves as a church. The external barriers for them is they wrestled with the fears of upsetting, upsetting the um, status quo, but they decided it was best to bring their friends, but their external barriers were quite literal in this sense. The house was jammed full of people, standing around wanting healing and words of wisdom from Jesus. There are physical barriers at times, and external barriers can be very daunting. Do you remember how vulnerable you felt the first time you visited a new church? Some of you, maybe that was recently. Some of you, that was 40 years ago. Try to remember that. How vulnerable it was. You didn't know anyone. You didn't know where things were. Maybe you recall joining an organization for the first time and not understanding the language. Not understanding quite what people were talking about. I, I told Jason this the other night at 4.30 in the morning when we were talking. At, I, um, I, uh, in college, I decided my senior college that I was going to run for our student body government, um, which I believe I was telling Jeff as well. And it doesn't make sense. It, I, I, I enjoy talking in front of people, but I really did it as a joke. I thought, oh, this, wouldn't this be hilarious if I made student government? Well, I got elected. Um, and... Uh, I very much felt like an outsider, one, because I didn't necessarily want to be there. Who does something out of irony and then sticks with it? But the difficulty was I actually got in the student council and there were people that loved to be there. And they had their own language, they had their own places of sitting. And I was an outsider to that. I didn't understand what they were talking about at times. I didn't understand the process that was going on. And because of that, I didn't feel accepted. I felt like there was a barrier us. So look at verse 4 of this chapter. It said, they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowds. We need to ask ourselves and the Holy Spirit this very searching question this morning. Are there any barriers that are keeping people from getting to know Jesus in this church? And you might say to yourself, well, no. We don't have people jamming in the doors. We don't have people just outside the door of the prayer room here can't get in because it's literally so full in here and the fire marshal will not let people in. No. 
we don't have so many people that we have to get up on the roof and lower someone through our ceiling here. No. But just because there's space, just because there's empty places to sit, just because there's room in the narthex, it doesn't mean we're open. So I want you to close your eyes. Do me a favor, close your eyes. You know, I want you to take a virtual tour of our church. Maybe today is the first time you've been here. And so you've had a pretty simple tour. Replay that tour, tour in your mind. And maybe you've been here for a long time. Take that tour of the areas of this building you know. Think about it when you arrive. Think about our parking lot. Is it hospitable for guests to park? Do they know where to come in? Would people feel like they have to dig through the roof, so to speak, like the paralyzed man's friends had to do? When they get into the entrance and come inside, are they greeted immediately? Today you were assaulted with donut and drink. Does that happen all the time? Are there signs showing people where the restrooms are? Are there enough restrooms? When a new parent comes in with a baby, do they find a sparkling clean nursery with attendance? When a guest comes to worship, do they find room to sneak in to the back pews? Or do we fill those up first? Do we provide worship space for people with differing abilities? Where people with mobility or mental issues feel like they are involved in worship. Think about this. Do we have any of these things? Do we have any of these barriers? When we look at this passage in Mark, we don't necessarily know if this is Jesus' house, if he had the deed to it or he was just renting it with a couple of his friends. But where is Jesus' house today? And if we look in the third chapter of Ephesians, we see that we, we, the body of Christ, the children of God, we are the dwelling place of God with Jesus as our cornerstone. This is Jesus' house. We are Jesus' house. So did you see those barriers as you were going through your mental tour? Anything that would keep people from coming in and finding Jesus here in this place with us? Is there anything that says, keep out, instead of please come in? We need to be thinking our internal and ex external barriers from keep pe people, from preventing people from coming here to meet Jesus at Jesus' house, our lives in our church. I read this story recently, and it goes like this. I think it's, it's a perfect way of making this point. It says, a church had a vacation Bible school outdoors. And they had a kind of marketplace very similar to what we did with a night in Bethlehem that felt like a New Testament street scene. Adult volunteers at the church portrayed different characters from the gospel. They even had a person dressed up as Jesus, and the kids loved it. 
especially a little girl named Elizabeth. And after VBS was over for the day, Elizabeth was home when she somehow got a her leg. She showed it to her mother, who gave it the required kiss. Even put on the special boo-boo cream and the Dora the Explorer Band-Aid. But that wasn't enough for Elizabeth. She said, I have to show it to Jesus. She insisted he can make it better. And the mother said, oh, that's not really Jesus. But the child kept insisting, I have to show it to Jesus to make it better. And the mom tried to explain that Jesus didn't really live at that church. It was just a guy in a costume. But it just made it worse. And the girl said, he does, he does, he lives there. So at a loss, the mother loaded her kids in the car and she headed over to the church. And she expected no one to be there because it was an hour or so later. But as they drove up, they saw people milling about, as often happens when you set up for the next day of VBS, taking the outdoor decorations down. And the man who'd been betraying Jesus was there, sitting on the church's front porch. He wasn't in costume, he didn't have his wig on, he wasn't even wearing his normal, he was just wearing his normal clothes, looking like a normal guy. But the little girl didn't seem to notice. She just said, there he is. She shouted and ran to him. But the man, even though he was surprised, held out his hands and greeted her. And the child told him all about her scratch. He listened. And together, the mother, two children, and Jesus said a prayer. Then like the man on the mat who met Jesus in his home, the family got up and went home. So may we pray that God blesses this house. And let's pray together. Let's commit ourselves that every guest whether they're walking in by themselves or carried in on a mat, meets Jesus here in our lives, in our building, and on our front porch. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.